Some neuroscientists are confirming what their colleagues were discovering in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. But a few deep psychedelic trips, supported by conventional psychotherapy methods, may be able to unlock some crippling mood disorders and addictions. But because psychedelics are illegal, the growing movement of people in South Africa who are using them therapeutically rely on an underground movement of traditional healers and journey guides. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the world of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. My name is Leonie Jaber, and this is episode one, Tripping the Blues. Quarter gram of dried magic mushrooms, say a cap the size of a thumbnail, the leaves on the trees become iridescent and swirl like patterns in Van Gogh's Starry Night. The pebbles on the ground puff and sigh gently as though they're breathing. People's faces become caricatured, maybe even strangely monstrous, but not ugly or freaky or anything, just curious and wondrous and maybe a bit funny. On one gram or so, depending on the strength, gravity pulls your eyelids shut, and that's when the magic starts. They call it the sacred geometry. A kaleidoscope of fractal patterns fill your vision. They blossom and swirl upwards like the vaulted ceiling of the Taj Mahal in iridescent gold or silver or turquoise, edged with quicksilver. Your vision is filled with a movie of a swirling, shape-shifting aurora, Only there's nothing ethereal about the colours. They're bold, metal-edged, primary. They're thick and solid, but they move like liquid. Music. Oh, there must be music. Because music becomes the brickwork that holds these archways together. It's the very fabric of the geometry itself. The universe is singing to you. The moment is complete, and you are at one with yourself and everything around you. These are party-level or mild quantities of hallucinogenic mushrooms. Take a much higher dose, and you slip across a threshold into another dimension entirely. And it's in here, in the deep psychedelic state, that the healing potential of hallucinogenic mushrooms may lie. This is according to an emerging body of research from prestigious medical centres, such as the Imperial College London in the UK and Johns Hopkins University and New York University in the US. Up the dose to 5 grams and your body becomes porous like pumice stone. Your physical shape dissolves and what's left is pure consciousness. A cacophony of light and colour and sound. You aren't watching the movie of the sacred geometry anymore. You've stepped right inside it. You're in a vaulted room, and all about you are towering archways and mosaics and glistening colours. You are at one with all of this. If all goes well, and it often does if people's stories are anything to go by, then the emotional soundtrack would be the tune of pure and distilled bliss. If it doesn't go well, and things become challenging, and we'll talk about what that means in a later episode, 
you usually have an overwhelming sense that you have what you need to deal with it. Eventually, the geometry begins to fade, and the journey may begin wandering back through the hallways of your life, allowing you to pick up memories like artifacts in a museum. You can turn them around in your hand so that you can relook at them, study them, understand them in a new way. The good stuff, the bad stuff, it all starts to make sense. Or there might just be a clarity of thinking, as if the fog has cleared and you now understand. It's just, everything finally makes sense. When Lani Fisher tries to describe that place, that sense of knowing, she becomes quiet and smiles inscrutably. No, she says, shrugging. Language is inadequate. The first time the 67-year-old agrees to speak with me about her experience with hallucinogenic mushrooms, she's sitting primly on a plastic inflatable sofa that's wilting slightly in the early autumn heat of the Tankwa Karoo. It's midway through Africa Burn, a sort of art-music-play-gathering that happens in the desert every autumn, where psychedelics are often the party drugs of choice. But for Lani, and that's not her real name, hallucinogenic mushrooms aren't a plaything. They're how she manages her low-grade but chronic depression. Every three months or so, she'll visit a traditional healer, a so-called journey guide, and together with a small group of people, will take what the psychonaut community jokingly calls a hero's dose of dried magic mushrooms. And then she'll wait for her body to dissolve around her. She'll step across that portal and spend the better part of a night wandering about in this world of vaulted archways, dancing colours and mesmerising sound. Lani is sparse in the retelling of her story. There's no self-pity, little emotion, just matters of fact. But there were years of trauma at the hands of an abusive parent in her early adolescence in post-war Europe. Her coping mechanism was to shut it all down, to bury the memories. She went hunting for distraction instead. Her adolescent rabble-rousing got her expelled from four high schools. She drank heavily, smoked a bit of pot. She joined any political protest she could find, became a Marxist, hit the streets to march against nuclear power. She drove racing cars, the faster, the better, no inhibitions, and motorbikes, always way too fast. She made a living in adventure sports. Her substance of choice, her body's own adrenaline hormone. It was only years later, at 50, when her boys had left home and her marriage ended, that the ghosts started to materialise. They didn't come in the form of solid memories or the typical flashbacks of post-traumatic stress. They came as a darkness that had no form, a listlessness. Uh, what's the point? Getting out of bed was hard. She hasn't been formally diagnosed with depression and hasn't tried meds for it. But when she settled in the Western Cape in South Africa a few years back, she heard that some of her friends were using hallucinogenic mushrooms to manage their depression. Some were microdosing. This involves taking tiny, barely noticeable quantities daily or two or three times a week. Others were trying the deep psychedelic journeys as a remedy. For her, it was a hero's dose or nothing.
The second time Lani and I speak, it's several months later, and the conversation is hammered out through our keyboards. She's in Europe, I'm back at my desk in Cape Town. She's still as vague as before about her psychedelic experiences. She's not a wordy person. But by now I've got a better sense of what's going on in this underground community of self-styled healers and self-medicators. These curious people who dabble in what they call the healing plants. A quick aside, mushrooms aren't plants. Technically speaking, they're a fungus. This is an entirely different biological order altogether. Think plant kingdom, animal kingdom, the kingdom of the fungus, where mushrooms share the good company with microscopic organisms like yeast and mold. But in the psychonaut community, they tend to get lumped in with plants, just so you know. By now, I've found more and more people willing to tell me their stories about how they've been doing mushroom ceremonies for a kind of psychological or existential reboot. Some do it as a spiritual recharge. Some do it to free up their creative muscles. Some do it to exorcise whatever demons might be troubling them. Others, like Lani, do it to keep the black dog of depression at bay. All of them, though, do it for some sort of self-actualization a kind of ongoing personal growth process. As you'll see in time, it gets harder to separate out the therapeutic from the creative and the spiritual in the realm of the plant medicines. Either way, it's a word-of-mouth community where, once you're in, pretty quickly leads you to the journey guides and their discreet home ceremonies, which take place in ordinary living rooms, in ordinary homes. It usually starts at dusk, with a roaring fire and a fireminder, and a carefully choreographed playlist of music, and a bunch of minders who sit with the trippers throughout the night. It's a surprising mix of people in this community. Sure, there's the odd flat earther. No, seriously, people who honestly believe there's a scientific argument to explain that the world is properly flat. There are plenty of full-on 60s-era hippies. There are a few self-styled shamans and the odd libertarian. But there are also lawyers. Professors, artists, writers, accountants, psychologists, CEOs, engineers, life coaches, vets, business leaders. People who you'd never think, by their day jobs, would be tinkering in something as fringe as this. But here they are, taking care of their own well-being by taking a highly illegal drug. But we need more than just a handful of interesting anecdotes. Because good science doesn't come from self-reported case studies, which are skewed by observer bias and wishful thinking. If we're going to believe all these claims about how the benefits of hallucinogenic mushrooms seem to linger, even for weeks after the substance has left a person's body, we need something a bit more evidence-based. And it turns out, it's there. I know, for many listeners, your brains are going to be scrambling right now. How can a bunch of drugs these things called psychedelics, how, if they are ranked alongside other substances that have become synonymous with homeless drug addicts and criminally violent tickheads and the likes, how can they possibly be able to treat the very conditions that many of these addicts are self-medicating against? Well, I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, because we need plenty of time to flesh the whole story out. But what psychedelic researchers are finding is that it looks like these drugs can complement conventional therapy methods to treat mood disorders and addictions. I kid you not, this is the world of psychedelic psychiatry. 
and it's just revisiting a discipline that has its roots in the pre-flower power era, long before psychedelics made it into the party scene. But before we look at how research therapists are putting hallucinogenic mushrooms to work in the lab setting to help people overcome depression, anxiety, and some kinds of addictions, we need to look at two important experiments that came well before all of this. And this is where you'll see why it's hard to separate out the spiritual from the psychological and the therapeutic. The first experiment was to see if it's possible to manufacture an encounter with God. And that matters therapeutically because a Damascus Road experience, whether the encounter feels real or imagined, is often useful in dealing with addictive spirals. The second experiment was to see if a single psychedelic experience on mushrooms can bring about a permanent change in personality and mood. The answer to both questions, it turns out, is yes. The 1962 study has become known as the Good Friday Experiment, and it probably wouldn't go down too well in your average Easter Sunday service. It was the era of Timothy Leary, the American psychologist best known for his exploration of psychedelics. A divinity student at Boston University, Walter Pank, I hope I said that right, decided on a rather unconventional PhD topic. He wanted to see if it was possible to trigger a mystical experience in people. Before the Good Friday church service that year, Walter gave 20 of his fellow divinity students each one capsule. Half of the batch of capsules contained psilocybin, the hallucinogenic compound found in magic mushrooms. The rest of the tablets contained a placebo. And then they all went off to church. Apparently things didn't go too well for one of the students who had to be led away and sedated. Another chap tried to wee in the chapel, but luckily caught himself in time. Many of the rest who took the psilocybin, though, found what so many do on this entheogen. They encountered God. Not necessarily their God, with a capital G, but a form of the divine, with a lowercase d. It's hard to find the right words to describe the kind of encounter they'll have had, But most of the psychonauts will give you a knowing smile, even the atheists. We're not talking about anyone's specific God, and this isn't suggesting that that God actually exists. But while in that vaulted room, people have an encounter with a form of the divine that each individual can recognize and identify with. When I speak with Lani, she's frustratingly clipped in her descriptions when I press her again for more detail. But it's not because she doesn't want to say what she finds there. It's because she can't. Our language is too limited, she says. Our religious experiences in a sober state are false reference points relative to what happens when this compound acts on the brain. While the metallic-edged explosions of colour and patterns swirl around you, there's a sense that you are in communion with something wise, old, all-knowing. For different people, it takes different shapes. For an atheist like Lani, it's the divinity of her own wisdom. Thoughts flow, ideas blossom, knowledge comes with a crystal clarity. Ask a question, and an answer will find you. And you will know that it's a great wisdom, 
there's a feeling of well-being, of connectedness, and that everything is okay in the world. And this will linger for hours, even days after the experience. That's the power of psilocybin. Not bad, huh, as far as hangovers go. One Cape Town psychonaut, also an atheist, who sees this as a way of tapping into a knowledge that's already inside her, describes one of these moments. I was sitting in a funeral service one Sunday, the morning after an incredible mushroom trip. Not a full journey, just party-level quantities of shrooms. For a few hours that night, I had the most incredible sense of clarity about the fact that I was on the right path with my work and my life. That all the events leading up to that moment were in perfect synchronicity. That I was starting a fresh chapter on a new project. And that I should trust that everything is exactly as it should be. It was pure bliss that went on for hours. This entity that I spent the evening with. It was feminine, wise, older. There was a certainty about her. She was so gentle. She was, I guess, me, just nicer. It wasn't a boastful or domineering knowledge. It was tender and enveloping. This awareness was still with me the following day during the funeral service. While I was listening to the minister delivering his sermon, my sense was that his words felt dead, that he wasn't speaking from a point of having actually heard or lived or felt his words. It sounded as though he was reading from a user's manual for a kitchen appliance like it was a checklist of things you need to say or do to find God. It was as if he was copying and pasting text from one document to another, without actually reading it or thinking about what it meant. There was no love or life in what he was saying. I wanted to say, I can show you God. But then I realized we wouldn't be talking about the same thing. I'd be saying in my way precisely what he was trying to say to me, that he could show me his version of God. It was like a philosophical fast draw inside my head. But really, all I wanted to do was slip him a gram and say, trust me, try this. It's not for nothing that psilocybin mushrooms are called the God Mushroom. The second experiment happened in 2002, and it's become known as the well-being experiment. A psychiatrist from the medical school at Johns Hopkins University, Professor Roland Griffiths, decided to replicate the Good Friday experiment. He got 36 healthy volunteers. They were all adults, had never tried psychedelics before, and were all to some extent religious. They were randomly assigned to have two or three psilocybin sessions, or placebo sessions. In the case of the placebo, people were dosed with a drug that's used to treat attention deficit disorder. The subjects did their trips in a lounge-type setting, individually rather than in a group, and each had two therapists watching over them. They wore eye masks to block out any visual distraction, and listened to music to help with the inward journey, which usually lasts about four hours. Researchers then recorded the participants' session experiences, the afterglow in the day or week that followed, and then they did a check-in 14 months later. The results of the well-being experiment are all over the web. Over half the participants said the psilocybin sessions were amongst the five most personally meaningful experiences of their lives. 
two-thirds said that they were amongst the five most spiritually significant experiences of their lives. Many said they had an increased sense of well-being and life satisfaction that lasted well beyond when the psilocybin had left their bodies. They reported behaviour and personality changes that lasted for months after the sessions. Up to a year later, they still felt more open towards people, less guarded, more understanding of others, more empathetic. Their friends and family also seemed to find them kinder and happier and somehow calmer. Here's a bit of Psychology 101 I picked up while I was doing this research. Apparently, once we reach the age of about 30, we tend to become more rigid in our personalities, more closed off to others, less creative. It's harder to change ourselves, and it usually takes a tectonic life event to do so. And I guess in this sense we're talking about the Jungian idea of the midlife crisis. No, not that sexist stereotype about the balding 50-something who trades in the station wagon for the red convertible or his wife for the secretary. Ugh. The real midlife crisis is that shattering of self that can happen to anyone at pretty much any point in our adulthood. It can happen when, say, we lose a child, or when we're fired from a job after two decades, or when we're faced with a life-threatening illness, or our marriage implodes. It's profoundly disruptive. The trauma can last for months or even years, and it can change us permanently, for better or for worse. But as the Jungian therapist James Hollis writes, it's an opportunity to be born into emotional adulthood. It's the process of individuation, and it usually sucks balls. But it seems that one or two deep psychedelic journeys on psilocybin mushrooms seem able to bring about similar but overwhelmingly positive shifts in behavior and personality that seem to last well beyond the trip itself. It's not that the compound brings about a physical change to the brain, but it's the subjective experience people have while it's active in the brain that brings about the change, mostly making people more open to connection. What's going on in the machinery of the brain that makes this happen is another story, and it's one that we'll visit in episode 3 when we look at the plasticity of the brain and post-traumatic stress. But this experiment raises an important question. If just a few deep psychedelic trips can have such a lasting effect on healthy people, what could it mean for people with mood disorders? This is where we get to the lab-based results that confirm what Lani and others are telling us. Now we need to go to the medical department at the Imperial College London, where a team of psychedelic researchers are using psilocybin mushrooms to work with depression. So far, they've done two studies. The first intake was to pilot the method with 12 patients. The second study took in 20. In all cases, the participants had treatment-resistant depression. So these were people who had tried various antidepressants over the course of years, and they'd also tried psychotherapy, but none of these had worked for them. Over the period of about three months across both studies, the participants were given weekly therapy sessions. The first four or so were traditional talk therapy sessions to prepare people for the psychedelic experiences. The later sessions in the program were to help them integrate what had happened during the dosing sessions. The entire process involved only two sessions where they actually took the hallucinogenic mushrooms. I think there was an option for a third session towards the end, if I remember correctly. In the first session, they were given a mild to moderate dose. That's 10 milligrams of psilocybin to 70 kilograms of body weight. A week later, 
they were given a second more intense session with 25 milligrams of psilocybin to 70 kilograms of body weight. Now, according to Dr. Derek May from the Johns Hopkins medical team, the 25 milligram dosing of psilocybin falls within what the dose range will be when this becomes medicine. Note he says not if it becomes medicine, but when. His team has worked out that this 25 milligram dose of psilocybin equates to about 4 grams of dried mushrooms. Here we're talking about one of the more common types of mushrooms used in the psychedelic community, psilocybin cubensis. And going on Derek's estimates, I'd guess then that the mild 10 milligram dosing of psilocybin comes in at just under 2 grams of dried mushrooms. But it's a very rough measure. According to some of the growers I spoke with, the strength of the psilocybin in the dried mushrooms can vary a fair bit, even within the same strain and between different batches of the same strain. So it's really hard to gauge how one 5 gram journey dose will compare with the next. Also, the 5 gram doses taken at these ceremonial events generally aren't adjusted for body weight. You can take more or less if you like, but most people start with 5 grams, regardless of their body size or their level of experience. The doses also aren't adjusted to people's individual sensitivity to the substance, and many may not know what that sensitivity is if they haven't experimented with the substance before doing a journey. So there are a lot of variables out there, and that's the problem with this whole scene being pushed underground. It's hard to do decent research when the stuff's illegal. Okay. Back to the Imperial College Depression study. So the first two groups were really small, and only the second study was controlled to avoid participant self-reported bias and researchers' observer bias. But the results are still too significant to ignore, and have become the basis for the team's next study trial. What they saw in these participants was an immediate and significant drop in the usual symptoms of depression, both immediately after the session, and in some cases, months later. I'll put a link on the website to a talk by one of the Imperial College psychologists, Dr. Rosalind Watts, where she talks through some of the findings. From the second trial of 20 people, Watts says that three of the participants didn't appear to respond to the psilocybin at all. They reported no benefits during the sessions or afterwards. But for the rest of the participants, the changes were pretty significant. Six months after the study, most of them were still doing well. Six said that they were completely depression-free. What's interesting, though, is that some of them said that by about three months or so, they started to feel the depression beginning to return. And this is exactly what Lani says. Over the years, she's seen a similar thing happen. About three or four months after each journey, the black dog starts to pad back in along the edge of her consciousness. When this happens, she packs her overnight bag and her mattress and her sleeping bag and she gets ready to let her mind go off dancing again in the vaulted rooms of the sacred geometry. A few anecdotes like Lani's aren't enough to make any sweeping scientific claims, and believe me, there are plenty of similar anecdotes out there in the psychonaut community. We know that self-reported anecdotes need to be taken with a pinch of salt, and we know that the world of health and well-being is filled with alternative health treatments that are unverified and often hocus. Claims about their effectiveness are often based on anecdotes or wishful thinking, and you can understand why. But if you have enough anecdotes to confirm one another, you might have a trend. And if you have a trend, you have the basis for doing some rigorous, structured scientific research to test whether or not there's some validity in these claims. 
which is why those in the emerging field of psychedelic psychiatry are hopeful but tentative. They first need to free up laws and regulations around psilocybin so that these claims about their therapeutic potential can be tested in a research setting, even here in South Africa. And as I mentioned in the introduction to the series, if they're found to be effective for treating mood disorders like depression, how does the medical community then get them into the therapy room? But researchers say they can't afford to make any mistakes. In case legislators take flight, as they did in the 1970s, when these substances were first frog-marched into a rogues gallery of supposedly illicit and dangerous drugs. The fledgling field of psychedelic psychiatry started in Europe, Canada, and the United States between the 1940s and 60s, well before psychedelics became party drugs. We'll probably dip into the history of this in a later episode, but briefly, the field showed some promising results for the use of LSD in treating alcoholism, heroin addiction, and end-of-life anxiety in terminal cancer patients. But just as the field was shedding its down feathers and getting ready to take flight, it all came crashing down. Along came the 60s. Psychedelics suddenly became mainstream and hit the recreational scene. LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and peyote, a hallucinogenic cactus from the Mexican desert, were becoming synonymous with the peaceniks of the flower power generation. Religious leaders and governments panicked, particularly in the US, where young men were beginning to give the middle finger to their Vietnam call-up papers. They wanted to make love, not war, and Nixon didn't like that. The machinery of the United Nations kicked in. It put together the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, which outlawed psychedelics on the basis that they were supposedly dangerous, addictive, and of no medical value. But as an article in the medical journal The Lancet Psychiatry in April 2015 points out, the UN banned them without citing a single example showing that psilocybin or peyote are harmful, and only a handful of anecdotes related to LSD being harmful. But since then, all signatory countries of the Convention must align their domestic laws and policies with this international standard. In South Africa, that means that psychedelics are listed as a Schedule 7 substance, alongside heroin, mandrax and crystal meth which, as I said earlier, is what we call TIC in South Africa. These are the equivalent of Schedule 1 substances in the United States and in the UN Convention. Once the Convention made psychedelics almost universally illegal, the research lab shut down. But some of the knowledge has stayed alive in these odd communities of psychonauts. Some continue to keep the spirit of the 1960s alive and just play with psychedelics. Others, like Lani, Regards psilocybin as far too sacred a thing to use for fun. For her, hallucinogenic mushrooms are the next order of medicine. Lani continues to be light on the details when she describes her journeys, and I think it's because she's not a person of words. But I want you to hold out for episodes 3 and 4, which give much greater detail of the places and memories that people find when they do these trips, with a discussion from scientists about what's going on in the brain while this is happening and why it seems to have such long-lasting effects. 
For Lani, the ceremonial journeys aren't about revisiting the painful childhood memories themselves. What she finds there is more an experience of an all-encompassing love that engulfs her. Again, words are very bad crutches for description, she says. She doesn't necessarily return from that side with a particular kind of knowledge, but says it's as though her brain has been rebooted. After a journey, Lani says she's able to think about things in a new way, a somehow enlightened way. It often leads to astonishing insights, anything from how to repair a car door handle to new ways of looking at childhood trauma. The process of thinking becomes light and easy and fun. There's a new curiosity about things. The process of thinking becomes faster, not racing, but as if all the obstacles to thought have been removed. There's more clarity. It's as if the prison of socialization has been broken down and she has freedom to act and to think. And with that, the impact of her childhood trauma diminishes. In her last email to me, she writes, I've read up a bit on how this apparently forms new pathways in the brain. A question I have is this. How often does one have to repeat the high-dose trips in order to have these pathways stay for good? Or does one have to medicate from time to time? Which is quite a fun thing to do. I can almost see her impish smile on the other end of the line. But this is precisely the kind of question that's driving the lab research, and questions that can only be answered if the regulations that restrict psilocybin are freed up. Lani tells me she'll be back in South Africa soon, and she's already booked the date for when she'll go on her next journey, wandering off across that threshold into the vaulted world of towering geometric lines, multidimensional thought, music that is solid structure, and the euphoric dance with her own divinity. Some of the names and details of the people who appear in the series have been changed to protect their identities. And here's the disclaimer. The author, that's me, Leonie Jaber, and the partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction. Word is spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics. But because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up the conversation, as well as get some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with the unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of these substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment. And people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should stay well clear. Speak to an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. And don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think you are at mushroom identification, it's really hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only ones. And a special thanks to the many people who shared their time, stories and expertise with me so that this podcast could happen. You're all listed on the website and the list grows longer every day. But a particular tip of the cap to Oliver Barnett, Karen Shimka, 
Sam Kelly, Neroli Price, Sean Shelley, Dr. Kevin Stoloff, Adrian Galley, Andres Dutoy, and Ben Skuman. Huge gratitude to all the underground trippers and the journey guides who were bold enough to report back from the frontiers of their own psychedelic experiences. <laughs> 